Hello, world singers. My name is Brooke. And I'm Tyler. And this is Cosmere Cosmere Conversations. Conversations. Welcome back dudes and dudettes of the Cosmere. We finally, through a long and winding journey through the wilderness, have finally come into possession of White Sand Volume 3. It took way too long. It took multiple stores. It many took stores, many, many Amazons, orders. Lots of talking to lots of people. And we finally have it. We have White Sand Volume 3 in our possession, stacked them nicely in our bookshelves. Well, now filled with notes in front of us, but... Before that, lining it up very nicely and a little bit of a ride, a little bit of unexpectedness, a little bit of interestingness, a little bit of Cosmere things going on and some new shard information. We have covered previously the White Sand Volume 1 and Volume 2 in a standalone episode. As always, hashtag all spoilers all the time. You should know this. And I think that's a good point because one of the things I found reading volume three is that I regretted not rereading volume one and two right beforehand. I didn't feel like I needed to because I felt like I read both of them relatively recently and being a graphic novel, the story is slightly less complicated. So I was like, yeah, I've like, you know, got a handle on what's going on, but definitely wish I had done a reread. So... Maybe go back and just listen to that episode and get a quick little refresh. It might be helpful. We are not going to be doing a plot synopsis here too much. More looking at some of the greater connections that uh, have been made now and how it relates to the greater Cosmere. I did want to take a quick moment and just give some recognition to the other people involved. Obviously, producing any type of novel or work takes a lot of people, and we never give them all the recognition that they deserve. However, graphic novels are especially different because it's such a collaborative piece. Yeah, there's a lot more of the artistic work, especially that is done by other people. And we will definitely have some conversations about the artistic work. But it's not just Brandon Sanderson who's created this... The whole script is actually written by a different author whose name is Rick Hoskin or Hoskin. And then for volume three, we have artist Fritz Cassis. The coloring was done by Salvatore Alia Studios. And the letters were by DC Hopkins. Now... This is probably the first thing that is going to be noticeable or maybe attracted you to the comic book in the first place. The volume one, when it was released, is the artwork. I think that's, you know, kind of goes without saying is that a graphic novel separates itself because of the artwork and that new medium of presenting stories. Yeah, which we've talked about in the past, um, and I am a relatively new graphic novel slash comic book reader, so I offer that perspective, but I found this to be kind of a cool medium to read a Brandon Sanderson story in due to the sort of physics-based fantastical nature of his stories. It's a cool way to see these magic systems play out. Yeah, you can definitely imagine a lot of Brandon's work translating very well into movies, TV shows, any type of visual visual. medium. Exactly. And we have talked about just last week things we were looking forward to. One of the things I mentioned was seeing more of these things in visual mediums. White Sand was really one of the first examples. There were a couple of um, kind of standalone one-off type things, but... This was a full trilogy, always planned to be a trilogy or at least multiple volumes. And 
Brandon has incorporated a lot of interesting aspects that heretofore have not been seen in any of the books. We don't visit uh, the planet of Taldane anywhere other than these white sand graphic novels. For the super nerds out there, there is a kind of uh, first rough draft that Brandon did for White Sand Volume 1 that is in more of like a novella form. However, that novella does not cover the entirety of the trilogy, merely the first volume and kind of the introduction. So if you want the story, it's really here in these graphic novels. Then to sort of go back to the art happening in these books, as most people probably know, the actual visual artist has changed throughout the course of this trilogy. So the first book in its entirety was drawn by Julius Gopez. And then the second volume was done primarily by Julius Gopez as well, with the final chapter being completed by another Julius, Julius Otha. Um, And we talked in that past episode about the difference in uh, drawing styles there and there being a clear visual difference. Then volume three is drawn by a completely different person, as we said previously, Fritz Casas. And so if what brought you in to the first graphic novel was the unique artwork, and I know this is a auditory medium and we're talking primarily about a visual experience but if you liked that first graphic novel because of the artwork volume three is quite different um and we talked about it a little bit how volume two ended and it was jarring to go from one to the other yes but i also felt like we said hey you know maybe if volume two had been done entirely by this artist it yeah. could work yeah we didn't necessarily dislike one artist or the other it was just the fact that it changed all of a sudden yeah. that mean, was uh, like very confusing that was the more upsetting thing and then we get to volume three and we have a whole different artist And while I have read some positive reviews online of the change, me personally thought it was a huge downgrade from volume one and volume two to volume three. Yeah, I have several qualms with (laughs) the art in this volume. I think we both agree that the art depictions the drawings in this volume are less um complex they're not quite as detailed as the previous volumes and i found that that really impacted my ability to follow the story being able to necessarily like recognize characters or track them all the way through or like really understand what actions were being depicted because of the simplicity of the drawings Yeah, I mean, we can be nice about this, but I guess we don't have to because it's our podcast. So (laughs) I really feel like simplicity or childish or cartoony is how I would describe the volume three artwork. And it really just, to my eye, was incredibly simplistic and not just like... I'm not just harping on it to harp on it, but one of the things that is recurring throughout the entire book, like Brooke said, I think takes away from the experience is how characters' faces are just blank or characters' costumes have virtually no detail. Yeah. There were several aspects like that that almost felt unfinished. Yeah. Like, I don't know if they were running up against a deadline or what but it almost feels like no one looked at the final product like there was no editing or continuity checks like there are a couple points in this novel where the character's outfit and like hairstyle completely changes from one frame to the next frame and no time has passed they are in the exact same situation the character is just suddenly wearing a different dress it's chris yeah there's like two pages where for absolutely no reason whatsoever her hair is in a ponytail 
and she's wearing a sleeveless dress. And then all of a sudden she is wearing her regular long sleeve dress. Literally from one frame to the other. Suddenly she's wearing something totally different and her hair is down instead of being in a ponytail. And it was just like, did did, did nobody look at this before you like published it? Yeah. And it is kind of a huge contrast to the first artist, Julius Gopez, who I think could be criticized for overly detailed and a lot of like overshading. Um, he uses kind of a lot of different texture techniques where everything becomes so textured that it also kind of blends in together and maybe doesn't stand out enough. Like yeah. there's there's kind of criticisms to give on both um, sides and of any work. Sure, you can like pick out things, but I really felt like the unfinished feel was the worst of just like, these two characters are standing at the same distance. Like it's not about perspective or trying to show how, you know, images fade over time. Yeah, yeah. focus or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. So they're at the same distance from the, the viewer. viewer. And one is drawn completely with like facial expressions and then a, a kind of the, it's sand mastery going around Kenton. And then Chris is sitting next to him and her dress is just like plain. It it just has no, like where are the creases? Where are the details? Where is yeah. anything? And then her face is blank. There is no face. It's just like a Chris is. It's like a Slenderman. Yeah, basically. <laughs> or just a mask of just like nothing. Like one of those like green people. Ma- <laughs> yeah. Where they yeah. just like put on the nude suits or whatever. Um, it looks like that. And it's just, just like nude face, just no face. And it's the weirdest thing to me of just like. What is going on here? On the subject of facial facial features as well, that's another qualm that I have with the depictions. In the first couple novels, Chris was very clearly of African descent, like her facial features as well as her dreadlocks. Are on our planet she was definitely of African yes, descent. Correct. Yeah. Obviously, she's actually a dark sider yes. on Talbane, but <laughs> that kind of had very clear um, ethnic and cultural links. Yeah, which I thought was and... totes cool. Yeah, it was great. And she was rocking it. And there were multiple scenes where I would say her character was standing out or separating herself making herself unique and like an actual character Mm -hmm. because of those clashes in culture like it was an interesting part of the first couple of novels like chris's and her gang uh bayon and the others um they were all kind of clearly different in many cultural significant ways to the story and that was interesting because it was like part of their plot line is like how they interacted with the daysiders being from dark side and then it all just kind of fades into mush and a kind of blandness in volume three wouldn't you agree well i mean i think their cultural differences remain my qualm was more that she seems to have less identifiably what we would call african features in volume three, like she gets a very aquiline nose for some reason, and she does not seem to have dreadlocks. She just seems to have regular straight brown hair. So she almost looks more like Middle Eastern or, and it just kind of seemed like they were trying to whitewash an African character and it just felt really weird. Well, I think that like a cartoon, is how I would describe the artwork in volume three, like a a kid's cartoon, you know, and that's not to say anything bad necessarily, but the uniqueness, the variety, the diversity is partially coming from an artist's own experiences and background. And they're like putting that style into their artwork And it just felt like this was done for, you know, mass market appeal, the most generic possible things with really, it's not pushing the boundaries or or just not pushing 
anything really it just it felt like a, a book by committee or something you know yeah for sure it didn't really take any risks or have anything compelling or interesting in the artwork anyway which as we've said previously kind of hindered my comprehension of the story and then also part of this artist's style which is something i was thinking while i was reading the book and then was confirmed when i read his little like artist bio on the flap of the book um but he draws in sort of a cinematic style with a lot of larger frames big like landscapes more like a zoomed out look in a lot of situations and then he also does this thing where he will carry over dialogue from a previous frame to the next frame or the next page by using like a little text box so it's almost like trying to give the impression of a voiceover in a movie however I found it to be very disorienting and did not contribute to my comprehension of the story at all. I would have much preferred to see the characters' faces sort of back and forth as they're having this conversation. I think that would have helped me track the characters better, helped me track the plot lines better. Yeah, but it would have required the artist to draw faces. Yeah, yeah, It just yeah. doesn't <laughs> seem to like drawing faces. Because uh, like, yeah, he it felt... I mean, you said cinematic, but I just felt storyboard, the actual like process mm, yeah. that's used, you know, behind Where the scenes. Where they like a lot roughly of times. draw out yeah, each frame. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of times that is, you're building a storyboard usually after you already have a script. Most, right. most people don't do it the other way around, though I have heard of uh, certain directors, but like most times you have a script which provides the details. And so the storyboard really does only need to be like a, iconic a scene quick sketch uh, yeah uh, uh, just a, a nice like, like this is kind of what we're thinking about yeah, yeah they're they're walking down a street in paris they're hand in hand right and like that is the shot that the the a quick storyboard impression. yes exactly yeah. and when you compare directly page to page from white sand volume one to volume three it's not even a comparison it's pretty startling uh i mean it, it's just like wow one of these looks like a kind of real world almost and then one yeah. looks like a storyboard rough yeah, sketch or like a like you said sort of a cartoon or like something you can't totally get invested in because it doesn't really feel real it doesn't look real you know you don't have that same kind of texturing like you were talking about to give it that real world feel um and i said this to you off mic as well but i'll say it on mic for the fans the first couple of books I found something interesting about reading a graphic novel was like how much time you can take with it of, you know, reading the text and then kind of going back and looking at that same page again and really studying the faces and studying the art on the page. And it adds so much to the experience of reading. And that's kind of, I think, the point of a graphic novel is that experience. And I did not experience that at all with volume three. I pretty much just read it all the way through. I wasn't pausing on any pages to you know take in the events that were happening i think that that is really my favorite aspect i mean i specifically remember returning multiple times to kind of the quintessential comic book watchmen which is i would actually compare the first artist visual style closer to watchmen uh in many ways and you can read that and look at that and find little Easter eggs and, and interesting details in Watchmen infinitely. It, I mean, it's it's probably better than any of these uh, <laughs> comic books. However, the kind of description that you had of returning to a graphic novel, that is what I found so enjoyable about the best graphic novels and did find in Volume 1 and Volume 2 to a lesser degree. I thought it was interesting. I thought it had like visually unique things going on. And especially when Brandon Sanderson's stories and worlds are so well developed, in normal novels we like get to experience so much of those things that in a graphic novel by nature you kind of lose some of that. Obviously you can't put as much text in. So having good art especially for Brandon Sanderson's stories, I think is super important to 
add all of those details that you're not going to get in the text like you normally would. And I think one of the things that is most interesting about the comic book medium and is probably one of the things that is a little bit harder to understand unless you have read quite a few comic books and seen a lot of different styles, but it's about the way that images are shown and kind of the order that they're shown that creates a better story and better flow. And you can kind of sometimes create movement or the characters fighting or or some type of visceral thing happening by playing with the actual frames and how they are arranged on page. Yeah, because it kind of mimics the way that your brain takes in images yes. like in real time. Yes. And so that was you know, one of the things I'll just return to Watchmen because I know that one of the things that it was known for is using a very cookie cutter formatting style of nine total frames on a page with three rows of three. And so it'd be like box, 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 next line, box, box, box. And then when they wanted to change something up, you know, they would open up an entire page to one image, Dr. Manhattan standing there, or some type of cool moment would take up six of those boxes instead of just one, and they played with their formatting style in that way. That formatting complexity is really, really apparent in volume one and two, and I can't find it in volume three. Like, it just, there's nothing, movement is so stilted it's it's like image 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 and there's nothing going on that connects or links those images together and it is a real bummer because i felt like visceral about some of the moments in volume one and volume two uh and i just didn't have any like whoa that was super cool except there's one really cool moment at the end that we'll get to <laughs> um i mean in general what do you think about the story now that we have concluded White Sand. I think that White Sand has a bunch of promise, and White Sand has a bunch of very significant Cosmere characters. Home of Chris, Cosmere Scholar. Uh, we have multiple sightings of Hoyd, which we will talk about uh, throughout the events of Volume 1, 2, and 3. And there is a lot of potential with the, just the setup of White Sand because, well, we kind of are experiencing this political or uh, societal struggle that's going on around Kenton. To me, the background of this is you have a planet that is so divided, so clearly divided, and yet you have characters that are merging back and forth and, and sharing technology and trying to learn about technology from one side and the other. You have kind of the development of firearms and guns on dark side, which the Daysiders haven't yet seen. Chris is very scientifically minded, and she has kind of like a uh, following the scientific process to better understand sand mastery. So I kind of wonder if, you know, Taldane is going to be a birthplace of Cosmere Connection. Because it's already had a I lot mean, of stuff going on. I think we can definitely say that just because of Chris. Of course. Chris connects the whole Cosmere. Uh, yeah, she does connect. <laughs> the, okay, but she is just one character. And I'm wondering if like the tall Dane, because Bayon is also a world hopper. He follows Chris around it sometimes. But like we have, I think, a lot of early potential because I believe this story takes place in the past yeah like way in the past yeah because this is the beginning of chris's scholarly journey yeah her backstory basically yeah i do i think it's great to like you said have a story on taldane which seems like an important planet to get to know origin story of chris totally cool now that the whole series is completed i wonder if the story and the reader would have been better served had this story been told from Chris's perspective. Um, just like that sort of convention of letting the outsider be the reader's 
in to the mm-hmm. story since the reader is by nature an outsider to yeah. the story. Um, I I just wonder now if if the story had followed Chris, that might have enabled us to learn a little bit more as Chris was learning and have the these concepts. Um, everything that's happening on Dayside between the different factions and Sand Mastery and things like that having it from Chris's perspective would have given an opportunity to give exposition, right? Because Chris would be like, how does this work? And then Kenton would have been like, oh, you see, blah, 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 which is kind of what happened, but you just don't get as much of it when you're telling the story through the perspective of someone who already knows everything. I completely agree. And that's a great suggestion just about change in perspective of character. And it's something that, you know, should be easier to do in a visual medium like comic books. Like, it's totally possible. You can completely imagine having a parallel story even about Chris and Kenton. So Kenton gets you a lot more of the action scenes, obviously, like the cool sand mastery stuff. And we still want to follow him to kind of understand many of those magic elements but you could also have Chris play up a little bit more of the mystery and she's a little bit kind of like a detective because she's looking for someone. Mm -hmm. So like play that kind of aspect up. She's a scientist detective from (laughs) dark side who's like kind of motivated by both love and maybe revenge or something like that. Yeah. And and you could kind of. And there are sections that are from her perspective, but they're very minimal. And I think maybe if the, ratio had been flipped if Mm -hmm. it was like mostly from chris's perspective with a little bit of with some kenton like interspersed you know during those fight sequences and things if that might have worked a little bit better yeah because kenton's also learning about the the guilds and the different organizational structure of the taishin and the diem and kind of just learning how all of that aspect of the world works so I completely agree that it it should have been a little bit more of Chris's story. Because she is with him. Almost always. Almost always. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like as he's learning, she is also learning. So why are And I just feel like, yeah, it might be more interesting if it was from Chris's perspective. I really think that that is, it's a very straightforward and very linear story. Uh, of just right. kind of like totally. growth of Kenton from point A to point C. And we just kind of follow him and he gets like a little bit leveled up and a little bit more power and cool and you're there. And that's all. Does that really sound like an interesting story? <laughs> Especially in visual mediums. Like I think yeah. it's harder to do in a novel and a linear story is often easier in a novel. Think of like, when a novel does nonlinear storytelling mm. well, it's always so surprising yeah. and so miraculous or it really stands out compared to... Because it's hard. It's really hard to get your mind to operate in multiple nonlinear aspects and to combine that story. Think of N.K. Jeminson's The Broken Earth trilogy. Which is the best example of non-linear storytelling it's so good and if you guys are looking for something to fill your uh, cosmere drought highly highly recommend you check out and stick with it like it may seem overwhelming at least get all the way through the first novel and you'll know if you like it yeah yeah um i think that that's always something that is hard to do in a novel and yet it's something brandon does so well that it feels like a letdown than in a medium where it's a little bit easier to do nonlinear storytelling because you have the visual backup. You can jump frame to frame and it's all like, oh, all of a sudden this looks different. Right. There are different characters in a different setting and I can see all of that instantaneously. Like it should be a little bit easier. And Brandon's already pretty good at it in a novel form. I feel like it was a bummer that there wasn't more interesting aspects going on in the overall story. And I think, too, like you said, Kenton's storyline is pretty straightforward. Like, 
it's the hero's journey, basically. You know, he undergoes something terrible that catalyzes him to take action. He goes to each of the lords, asks them to help, and then he has a final battle. Whereas, like, Chris's story, she has a lot of ups and downs, and she leaves almost with more questions than she came with. In the same vein, Ais, the tract who is assigned to Kenton, also has a really compelling and complex and interesting story. Like, she might be the most interesting character in this book. She wrestles with her faith, her family, her job, um, her duty. Like, she wrestles with all of these huge things, and she's trying to solve this mystery against, like, an epic foe. Like, she could have her own comic book. Exactly. I And there's a bunch of fascinating aspects of this world that it does feel deep. You know, the concept that you would have these, uh, the Tai Shin and these different guilds that all have different power and kind of have their own backstory. We see in volume three that the position of mm, Lord Admiral super interesting. is both used as like a punishment and a way to weaken strong members used that way because it gives you title and strips you of all possessions. So if you are a powerful admiral with a bunch of ships and like a strong trade basis and then you are named Lord Admiral by the guild, they take all of your ships, they take all of your money and you become nothing and you're just allowed to get free passage from place to place and drink as much as you want. But it's used like a cudgel almost. And that's like interesting. That's that's a backstory that is kind of fascinating and exemplifies an interesting world where there's lots of stuff going on. So it's not necessarily the setting that I find problematic about the White Sand. It really is like the way the story is told and not really the characters or where we are, uh, (laughs) but just how it is portrayed. Yeah, agree. So that's kind of our section on the book itself and maybe our criticisms, our qualms with it. But Let's go into some of the Cosmere connections because this is still a Cosmere book. There's some stuff. There's some some cool stuff. So we have the planet of Taldane, which is in the same system as the Shard Autonomy. Yes. We've established previously that Autonomy is the Shard on Taldane. Now, one of the most interesting things about Autonomy is that he, she, it does not really represent itself in a single form. So we see autonomy quite often throughout the White Sand volumes. Yeah, like volume two, we saw Trell at the very end. And I think we speculated on the last podcast and we have since received more confirmation. Trell is an avatar of autonomy. So autonomy is a shard that, because of its nature, wanting to be autonomous, it is breaking off, maybe not breaking off pieces of itself, but creating these avatars that can operate independently from the shard. Like, kind of like Spren a little bit. There it is. I think that it is like Spren. It's autonomy's way of through his nature but also through mimicry or through um understanding what is going on on other planets because the other thing we know about autonomy is he wants to know what is going not he you understand they we can use our gender neutral pronouns it's perfect time for them they want to understand what is going on throughout the cosmere and has led to lots of investigation so i kind of think that the idea of autonomy creating, force creating, spren that are also independent operators is very reminiscent, maybe even a direct causation or possibly just correlation between Rashar and the actual spren and Taldane and his minions. Their minions. Their minions. 
we see autonomy a bunch often in the sky shown as both the sun yeah clouds like wisp and water lots of clouds in this volume three lots of cloud faces there is a word of brandon stating that bavadin appears female more often than they appear male and can also appear as not humans and then we might have mentioned this in the last episode about white sand, but I can't remember. But Brandon has also said that there are peoples who worship entire pantheons where every member of the pantheon is actually an avatar of autonomy. And on a planet that is so divided between religions where, as you said, Ais, the tract, is religiously devoted to the death slash destruction slash end of kenton's entire sand mastery organization the she believes in the sand lord which is also brandon has said autonomy, autonomy. yes exactly <laughs> so like the everything is interconnected and kind of woven back in towards autonomy and it all becomes very weird because these people are cre- they are creating divisions among themselves, violence among themselves. There's a, a group of assassins that we eventually realize is kind of like not operating in full or not operating the way we think. They're religiously motivated. And like, it's all autonomy in these different forms. I find that very fascinating. And again, a great example of like, I want to know more about Taldane and Trail and autonomy and what is going on with these characters or any other characters. Along those lines, to tie in with the letters that we got in Oathbringer, there is that one letter that is written from either the third person or in those gender-neutral pronouns um, about avatars of our being. And we found a word of Brandon, which we have not previously referenced on this podcast, that essentially... Patji, the island on First of the Sun, is an avatar of autonomy, not a separate shard. Which goes along with that letter, as Brooke was saying, about claiming Patji or, or, you know, Patji is ours now. The concept that Brandon seems to have been going back and forth with a fan on, I think, a Reddit thread was that G is kind of a collection of investiture that autonomy has recruited to his side, we will say, and kind of absorbed into the greater autonomy as one of these avatar or, you know, actors. And we don't really know how that plays out, but it's super interesting that this is not, as many people speculate it, the survival shard. Uh, the kind of the last shard that we didn't have a good understanding of everyone was like oh it's probably pet g now but i don't know i don't know what's going on anymore this seems like a shard like power that is now controlled by autonomy well it's very big picture i don't think we're going to hear more about this concept for a while um obviously listeners you can read this thread and see what you think. It's very long. It is a lot of words from Brandon's typing fingertips. Um, And it seems pretty complicated. And he basically concluded by just saying, I'm going to explore this concept in a book. And I'm not going to talk about it anymore because I'm just going to confuse you. So there's that. Yeah, because the, I think, overarching principle to remember is that Autonomy is kind of expanding. We think that on Scadriel, the red mist around the planet that Harmony is keeping back is some type of autonomy's influence. Pat G, we now have, I mean, we're looking at this Reddit thread that has kind of confirmation that autonomy has already maybe absorbed in that red mist fashion. Uh, Pat G and that island. So like the same type of thing could be trying to happen to schedule, could be trying to happen to other places. Yeah. I mean, I think 
part of what Brandon is saying in that Reddit thread is the concept that shards are pieces of adenaldium, which is infinite power, and therefore they can connect to other parts of that power. Like, they are not constrained by location. They may choose to concentrate all of their power in a single location, such as a planet or a system, but they're not necessarily, they don't have to. And autonomy has kind of figured that out and is using that, whereas other shards that we have seen, as far as we know, have not been using that, have been just remaining concentrated in one place, because as we know, they had an agreement that they would stay out of each other's way. Yeah, so, and again, without trying to reread the entirety of this thread on the interesting metaphysics of autonomy, I think the best way that Brandon tried to summarize it is speculating or hypothesizing. If you were to ask, how am I typing this response to you on Reddit? Am I using a keyboard or am I using matter that was created in an exploding sun? Or am I using subatomic particles that were created in the Big Bang? Technically speaking, all three are correct. They're all on different levels of scale so vast that we cannot comprehend, but a shard can operate on those scales so vast that we cannot comprehend. So there really is no space or time to a shard. They exist in all things, you know, they're like the force, but some of them don't realize that they have these bigger connections throughout the entirety of the Cosmere. And so I'm really interested to see how this develops, and I think it's going to be a big part of, you know, whatever in-game is in store for the Cosmere. Another connection to the greater Cosmere that we get is sightings of Hoid. Hoid is everywhere in White Sand. Remember, time-wise, for the characters that actually experience time, this is very, very far in our past compared to things on Rashar, Skadril, versus the Sun. Uh, we have a kind of great example of Hoid always being involved in in important areas about half dozen appearances in volume three alone uh with i definitely did not catch all of them <laughs> well i mean if you one you i'm breaking down like each and every frame that he was in i think he's oh, in five okay. total frames and there are a couple uh right in the start if you want to be fully spoiled here it comes you can skip over the next 10 seconds but i'm just going to tell you in Volume 3, he is always carrying a lyre, L-Y-R-E, or a stringed instrument, uh, kind of like a fancy lute or something like that. And he's in the background of a lot of shots until the very end where he is the center focal point of the last couple of frames as he is singing a song uh, while strumming on to his instrument. And I think this is a great way to end. It brings it all the way home. The words of the song that Hoyd is singing at the end of volume three go something like this. For the artist and you are apart. The further the distance from sayer of word, the more that their meanings are lost or are blurred. The more you must guess at the truth that is there, Creator creation parted by the breadth of a hair. And I do feel like this book just has that little bit of remove between Brandon and us. Yeah, but then Bayon blows up sand. Oh, man. Yes. Such a great ending. Bayon is a character that we have seen previously as a world hopper on Rashar hunting for Hoyd at the Pure Lake, with Galadon and Demo, And so we know he appears way later, and now we also have hard confirmation that he is a investiture user, maybe of a high order. I mean, he seems to 
direct a lot of power at a massive explosion at the end of the book. Well, more surprising is the fact that he's a dark sider and able yeah. to sandmaster, which is supposed to only be for the day siders. Speaking of sand mastery, we also got some interesting info on this system of investiture in volume three. Kenton finds out that in order to increase your power at sand mastery, you have to overmaster, which brings a sandmaster like I don't know close I don't know close to death is overstating it but it saps them of like power and life force and water for a time and then after they recover they have upped their power which sounds like some other investiture systems we know like uh ATM mistings well, and just the concept of breaking on Scadrial, the yeah. idea that Syl shares with Kaladin about having like a broken spirit web. So overmastery specifically draws on a person's water store in their own body. So it's like hyper dehydration. And in that process of overmastery, it seems like there's some type of breaking of the spirit web that then maybe gets rewoven by the sand or as we know the bacteria mm -hmm. that's coating the sand <laughs> um, and that allows for increased ribbon usage i don't that's the yeah that's right what word, they call ribbon. it yeah. ribbons of sand and you definitely can see the ribbons of sand. I know that was a <laughs> early criticism of the first artist. It was like you never even see the ribbons of sand. Well, they there's are lots present. of ribbons now. Yeah. There's, there's as many <laughs> ribbons as you want, but only if you overmaster to get them. It's also kind of like using night blood where at a certain point he starts to drain your life force, right? Like after you run out of investiture, it drains your life. That's like basically what Kenton does. He is using power until he runs out of power and then it runs on his life until bleh. That That's is, the technical term for it. Yes. Uh, but you can also see how there is kind of a little bit of confusion in the overall story or kind of the overall plot that has been laid out because Kenton was always pushing himself to extremes as a young boy and he was never able to go past that one single ribbon. Yeah, but he wasn't allowed to overmaster. So why was everyone making fun of him or like getting down on him if they knew the secret to it getting more ribbons? It was only told to people who were like already powerful enough. I think that I say that in volume three, it's like, oh, they screened the Sandmasters essentially and like only the ones that showed promise were told the truth. So... I guess I'm just saying like Kenton was always the person early on who was like pushing himself way harder than he should have because he was trying to make up for the fact that he only had one ribbon. And I understand the idea of like he didn't overmaster and therefore didn't upgrade. But just the concept seems a little silly to me because it was like a source of shame for like his father and stuff. But his father knew what apparently what the secret was which was because he had more than one ribbon so he had overmastered a bunch of times and like had probably figured it out like i just it, it just kind of leaves me i like the idea of breaking as a way to upgrade yourself because it fits in with other cosmere power structures but from a story perspective it just seems very confusing about you know why there was ever any tension in their society it should have just been like yeah everybody gets one two three ribbons yeah but people want to save power for themselves not everyone is a nice person well, that's a real bummer epic bummer there <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much the moral of the story it's just like some people suck and they keep all the power for themselves but at the end of this story i think it goes along with like the the twists the Again, hashtag all spoilers. We know this. But the idea that Dryle is not the actual bad guy. It's really Ellerin who is pulling the strings the entire time. And 
that type of reveal or twist is a made worse because the characters aren't necessarily clearly identifiable from what they are wearing or how they are presented uh often they are just a blank face just like white with blank face the other aspect is that for a twist or reveal to really have an emotional weight behind it it has to be kind of unexpected and powerful because of its connection to something else like oh Darth Vader is actually Luke's father what Luke thought his father was a hero and old Ben lied to him and it's connecting all of these different aspects together in one powerful moment that's why the moment is so iconic this was just like okay well I guess Dryle wasn't the bad guy and this guy was instead okay and I was just like left with a, a a lot of wanting for more of that kind of cool Sanderson avalanche where all the pieces start to line up at once and it just feels like everything is slamming together and becoming super epic and cool here it was like we have a boss battle and Dryle doesn't win but then immediately reveals the key information about also not being the real bad guy and it's just like okay cool yeah you just kind of like keep on flipping pages and that's not the experience that we want to have you know when we're reading our comic when we going forward then we want to be going back rechecking <laughs> stuff out again i still think there's a lot of hope for visual mediums presenting brandon's work and i yeah don't think that this is like a complete failure because it does showcase a little bit of the possibility when bringing stories to life uh, but it also showcases some of the difficulties and yeah like long production cycles these took many years between uh printings uh to get to the next volume so like that's another kind of downside brandon writes like a mofo and <laughs> getting artists who are both high quality and interesting and also able to produce on a schedule is very challenging uh, and like that's a just another wrinkle in the puzzle, but I think it's worth the wrinkles, you know. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it is good that Brandon gave this story to a third party because we got a little bit of Cosmere in a Cosmere drought that we normally would not have gotten. We would love to hear what you guys thought if you have read White Sand Volume Three. Tell us your opinions. Tell us how wrong we are for all of our qualms. Tell us if you agree with us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, all the places. We will see you there. And until next time, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. 